comments, questions? I have questions. You might need to talk loud or step up. <laughs> Josh is going to approach. <laughs> okay, so from the earlier slides, the sacrificial system was to show sins lead to death, and sin is what killed the animal. It's not something to somehow appease God's wrath. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, I guess just to clarify on that. Yeah. Um, see, when when they offered the animal, if the priest had offered the animal acting as as a God figure, then it would mean appeasement. Then God is demanding blood. But because the sinner is always the one who kills the animal, with the exception of doves, which for practical reasons the priest did kill, but by slaying the animal, the sin laid his hand on the animal, meaning I am the one who's causing this animal to die. He, this animal's dying because of me. Does this have to do with, uh, <laughs> I've been listening to some of your old stuff, um, <laughs> the <laughs> object, of the, the, well, you know, the syntax, um, who is the object or what is the object in the language? Is that sort of how this sin is the object, not God? Right. It, it's, it, it makes atonement for sin. The word kipper there ha does not have God as the object, meaning appeasement. It has al-kata, which means for sin. Make atonement for sin. So sin is the villain, you see, not God. And that's what I've, I found support. I've always believed this, for at least for a very long time. And then I found that Itzcock Fader also holds the same view. I always love it when I find someone who, who believes like I do. And uh, I find that Jews tend to hold the same things I do. They seem to read the Hebrew the same way I do. Which um, uh, Now... Coming to that, on your slide, you had that he does believe in a payment. How does that differ? Well, you're buying God off because you offended him. That's, you know, he's still retaining some of that. And he, has, uh, he goes off of the word kofer, which did mean payment. So there, there are times when you have this payment. Of course, it's embedded in Hebrew psych to have restitution for what you've done wrong. And I think it comes out of that, but I'm not convinced that Kofer and Kipper necessarily are that closely related. I mean, they come from the same root, but they can have, have a different aspect or meaning. And it seems to me that um, I can just as readily suggest that the atonement is made through the blood, which represents the truth. Okay. <laughs> so I, and keep in mind, this is all symbolism, so I, I, I'm translating as I go. Uh, it, my brain is stretching, so. <laughs> um, so just talking about payment, um, something happened, the, 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 the blood covenant, one with Abraham, um, it's two-sided. So the payment kind of refers to, if the covenant's broken, something has to be not that you're achieving it, but that's that's part of uh, the effect of yes. Okay. I think I got that. You're talking about the Abrahamic covenant and his cutting up of animals. That's not related to this at all, actually. Oh, okay. But I'll I'll tell you what it does mean. 
the original covenant, this is Paul's argument in Romans, the original covenant is um, Abraham trusted God and God considered that as righteousness. That's the kind of righteousness I want, is your trust. And then God offers him land, and Abraham says, I don't, how, how do I know that you're going to give that to me? Now he's lost his faith, or he's, he's doubting. He doesn't just believe God, and, and that's what God wanted. So God says, okay, I'll let you do what the more, uh, people in Mari do, which are probably somewhat related to Abraham. Abraham comes from that part, of possibly, of Mesopotamia. He says, I'll let you go ahead and cut a covenant. Now, see, originally God never cut a covenant. That's human, that human invention. You cut a covenant between two people, you cut up animal parts, and you walk between them, and you take on the terms of the covenant, and you say, you can do this to me if I do not keep my terms of the covenant. And so God originally established a covenant with Noah. There's no cutting. And he doesn't talk about a covenant with Abraham when there is one. But now because Abraham says, how do I know that I'm going to get it? God says, okay, go cut up, go take some animals. These are animals you take. And he doesn't even tell him what to do with them. Abraham knows what to do with them. So he cuts them in pieces. And then God, in the symbolism of the torch and the censer, passes between the body parts. And God says, you may cut me in pieces, as it were. I mean, he doesn't say it verbally, but he, the intent is there. You may cut me in pieces if I do not keep my terms of the covenant. He's clearly meeting Abraham where he is. That isn't the end of the story. Uh, Abraham continues to try to take on the terms of the covenant himself by having Ishmael. So God says, okay, Abraham, if you're going to not trust me and you're going to take on the covenant, terms of the covenant yourself, this is going to be the sign of the covenant. You're going to have to cut and you're going to have to cut a little closer to home. And circumcision is the result. And then the final test, because Abraham still doesn't trust God, he keeps lying about Sarah and, and so on, is you're going to have to cut your son Isaac. You're going to have to cut him off. And then God intervenes and says, no, that's not what I want. Are we clear? You know, so this is, this is something completely different in terms of the covenant. This is all about trust. And if, if Abraham had perfectly trusted God, there would have been no cutting. I've always thought that the sacrifice of, of, of Isaac by Abraham, as commanded by God, was a very strange thing for God to do. And this, this, makes this, this gives it better context for me. I actually had a, a couple other questions that are kind of related. I heard that there's textual evidence that the sacrificial system, especially in Genesis, was a post-exile overlay um, designed to reinforce the sacrificial practice in the returning exiles. And I heard some stuff from you today that kind of reinforces that. Um, I'd ask you to comment on that. And, and related is, at what point, if any, did the Jewish sacrificial system as practice come to be appeasement? Or was that pretty much always there in their practice? So let me make sure I heard you correctly. Uh, to what extent was the Jewish sacrifices later came to mean appeasement? Yeah. Okay. Itzcock Fader maintains that it was early that it meant appeasement and later that it didn't. 
you're hearing what you're not hearing is exclamations and surprise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he claims that that it fell out of that use because there are some earlier texts in his reckoning that suggest appeasement because they don't have an object. I think personally, those texts could be go either way. Um, they're just not definitive. Yeah, so um, particularly thinking uh, in Genesis, the, the stories of, of uh, Cain and Abel and the sacrifice and the sacrifice of Noah, I was told at one point that there was some evidence that, that maybe that was um, re-edited uh, post-exile. Well, there, there is, there does seem to be some uh, Levitical evidence for, I mean, it depends on when you, where you date Leviticus, of course. Uh, Leviticus, because you have the, he offers seven unclean and unclean animals and, and all of that. I mean, clean animals, but some, ha I think the text has seven and that sounds very Levitical. But it, since it's hard to know what is what, you know, I usually just take the Bible canonically. And what I, what I point out with Noah's sacrifices is that God kind of says, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. He smells the soothing odor. And then he says, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake because man's heart is evil from his youth up. Meaning, you know, look at what he's doing. He's slaughtering all these animals. More to think about. Uh, Gene, uh, you mentioned that there was no place that you could find where God told people to sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered about um, Job 42, uh, 7 and 8, when he tells um, Eliphaz and his friends to go to Job and sacrifice uh, bulls and goats. When I said that it, there's no place that God tells them to sacrifice, I'm talking about a definitive statement. I want you Israelites to offer me sacrifices all the time. The context of Job is that Job is already offering burnt offerings all the time. If you go to chapter 1, he's doing that all the time. Every time his children have a party, he offers sacrifices for them. So it's in that context so I don't consider that a definitive command. So um, I wanted to get a little bit of clarification on, on, so they had the Ten Commandments, and sometime after that they had the sacrifices. Was the golden calf between, or how did that play out? Yes, yes, I, believe, I honestly believe that's why God allowed them to do sacrifices and gave them so many regulations about it. They were going to do it anyway so he would give them regulations to kind of prevent some of the hazards from taking place thank you one one of the other things while you were giving your presentation we were chatting here is we see babylon in revelation and god speaking babylonian um to people in babylon is it a fair statement, or are we out of line to say basically much of the Bible is written to us because we're in Babylon? And I mean, is that sort of the major, the minor voice thing that's going on? Um, yeah, 
Um, I see that. Yeah, I see them speaking Babylonian simply because that's the only language they'll understand. And I think that's why the third angel's message is so difficult. So it's definitely made So basically, cover to cover, God is speaking into human uh, humanity, reaching us where we are. And since we're in Babylon, he's speaking mm -hmm. to us mm -hmm. in a language we can relate to. And particularly the Revelation originally, I think, was written for the Babylonian Jews. Uh, Jews who inherited the Babylonian uh, script, you might say. Very specifically. Oh, Angela? Was yeah. that? Yeah. Were you? Here's Ted. I had a question about where it says that the smoke of their torment went up forever and ever. Mm -hmm. um, in Revelation 15, 8 says the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God. Does that relate to that being the torment and that his glory goes on forever and ever? Well, we certainly can piece together the evidence in, in uh, the Bible that God's glory is a consuming fire. I mean, Hebrews twelve twenty nine says that in so many words. So, yeah, the, the temple is filled with smoke. Which, of course, means that a person who, in their sinful state, are confronted with God's glory, uh, they're going to be consumed. But keep in mind, <clears throat> this is not a normal consumption, because if you look at, read the Nadab and Abihu story, where God's glory comes out like a fire and, and consumes them, they carry them out, their bodies out in their tunics. So... I'm not sure how consumed, uh, how literally we should take that. Well, the forever and ever then, I mean, we hear so many people saying this is hellfire because it's going to go on forever and ever, but ever and ever is because God's glory never ends? You need to know that the term forever and ever should not be taken literally. Okay. Um, and the reason is because... Daniel stands before King Nebuchadnezzar and says, O king, live forever. Jude 9 says that Sodom and Gomorrah underwent a punishment of eternal fire, and yet we know where Sodom and Gomorrah probably were, and there's no fire there. there we can see evidence of fire, but we can't, there's, there's no ever-burning fire there. So, uh, and, and I'll give you one extra biblical evidence for that, and that is they found a, a bunch of uh, documents in uh, Yev, Egypt, that were written by Jews who went to Egypt after Jeremiah. They, they actually took Jeremiah with them and they went to Egypt. And they wrote in Aramaic because, their because that became their language. And they con there's a marriage contract in these documents where a, a man takes a slave of another man to be his wife. And he says, I so-and-so, slave, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm so-and-so, son of so-and-so, take this so-and-so, the slave of so-and-so, to be my wife, and I betroth her forever and ever. And if tomorrow or the next day she does not please me and I divorce her. <laughs> That's how long forever is. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Anybody else?
Um, what was the reference from uh, Signs of the Times? I didn't Science, catch that. Yeah, Signs of the Times, April 14, 1898. Also, when you talked about Revelation 14, about uh, sulfur mm -hmm. or brimstone, same thing. A few years ago, I, I looked up the roots of that word. I don't remember if it was in Greek or Hebrew. And, uh, and I got a really big surprise when I discovered that it also means flashes of divinity, which would make perfect sense. Because mm -hmm. if they're suffering in fire and flashes of divinity, that's where the flashes of And sulfur is simply a symbol of the brightest thing, you know, that we can imagine. Mm -hmm. to describe flashes of divinity instead of literal physical sulfur. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure there's, there's more to it than we know. Um, so I think I need a, another recap. On the Day of Atonement, the goat that goes away... Mm -hmm. Is is symbolic of the angry God? Is that yeah? Is Zazel the name of Zazel? Is this metastasized form of Azazu plus L? So it's taking the Babylonian Azazu for anger. Remember, that's the Azazu that or the anger that is the characteristic of deity. So it's the angry God. Azazu means angry God. So in how we kind of understand it, is it God is putting the sin, the remnant, the, the curse onto the goat and letting it go? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, okay, I, I'm just trying to get my head around it because it's packed, it's loaded. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, oh, it's packed and it's loaded. I, oh, yeah. I, yeah. How yeah. God is dealing with the sin problem. My, my understanding, it's a matter of culpability. Who is responsible for this? The, the, the sinner puts his hand on the, on the sacrificial animal, or the priest puts his hand on the, li, li, uh, the not the live goat, but the one that's going to be sacrificed. And he says, you know, we're culpable for this animal dying. That represents Christ's death. But when it comes to the end of the day, when, when the whole thing, the sanctuary itself is cleansed, that is the place where God dwells, which has been besmirched, besmirched by sin and, and has uh, been polluted by all these charges against God's character. When all that is cleared and we, are, we have been cleared, as it were. I mean, Satan can't do charges against us anymore. Because it's been clear that we were lied to by him, that we, we now reject those lies, we now trust God. Then it's time to call to account the devil. He started it all. He did it all. So the, the sins go on him. It's all his responsibility. And off he goes. And he's the angry God. And to me, that's, what's, that's the culmination point. And keep in mind that if you go to Leviticus 16.1, the context for the Day of Atonement is the death of Nadab and Abihu. 
And so the question that the death of Nadab and Abihu bring is, how can one get into the presence of God without dying? And, and what God is trying to establish is, is one thing you've got to know is that I'm not angry. This is the angry God. And I think if we could really get that straight, the Day of Atonement would have so much more meaning. Is there significance that somebody pointed out once that when they laid hands on Azazel is the only time there's recorded that they were to lay both hands on him, not just one? I'd have to look that up. I think I've heard that too. Uh, let me look at Leviticus 16. It doesn't say anything about laying hands on the bull. Um, then he shall slaughter the goat. It doesn't say anything about laying hands on the goat. Let me look at Leviticus 1. It says, uh, the bull, let's see. You shall lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering. And um, verse 4, he shall lay his hand on the head of the bull for the sin offering. <clears throat> so then verse uh, chapter 16 shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat. Yeah. So laying one hand could signify I am partially responsible for slaying this animal. Whereas when the high priest, representing Christ, lays both hands on the bull, he is fully culpable. He, the, the, the sins are transferred. I still believe in transfer, even though uh, current scholarship, including Adventist scholarship, has ruled that out. I believe that, that it's symbolically transferring sin. And I, I, the only thing that makes sense to me is that he's fully culpable, the, the goat for Azazel. Well, wouldn't the transfer be not so much mystical as it is happening in the minds of onlookers? That's possible. Mm -hmm. You know, to transfer, you're transferring responsibility, and, and that is an increasing awareness. You know, it, it starts out, Satan's accusing us of being responsible, and then increase, and so Jesus comes and he says, well, I'll take responsibility, but then in the end, ultimately, it's unequivocally clear, without question, without any doubt, that Satan started the whole thing, and the whole thing was was perpetrated on a lie, on a deception, on tricking our parents, everything, and we are not culpable whatsoever. Yeah, we didn't originate it. Gene, um, you had made a comment um, earlier that the Jews hold um, something like the closest view to your understanding of these things. I should um, say Jewish scholars, yeah. Jewish scholars. Um, is that coming from like the Talmud, rabbis, the Mishnah, maybe earlier? No, no it's just that they read the text the same way I do, oh. more, more than other scholars. So I, I cited two Jewish scholars, Tal Will on the Goat Azazel and Yet Fader on, on the use of Kippur with the indirect object. Okay. And I see Angela's raised her hand again. Yeah, I have another friend, Roger, here. 
Yeah, I had a question about the, that um, remarks you made about Abraham and Isaac that that was misunderstood. Okay. About the sacrifice, that that wasn't what you really wanted. Yeah. Um, the actually, this comes from uh, the rabbis. The rabbis held that. Uh, the request of God to Abraham to sacrifice Isaac was brought about because Satan charged him like he did in Job as not trusting God. I don't know if they use the word trust or obedience, but um, anyways, the, the concept that what, is hap what happened to God commanding Abraham to do this was similar to what happened with Job in heaven uh, that was paralleled on earth. Uh, so... I don't see this as God's original plan. What happens is that if throughout the covenantal uh, stories, Abraham over and over again manifests distrust of God's promise. Oh, okay, yeah. And so God, in response, has to do the cutting of the animals and go through the body parts. He has to have circumcision as a sign, and then he has to have the binding of Isaac. I have a question. Mm -hmm. On the Azazel's goat, mm -hmm. and he's out into the wilderness, what is the ultimate end there, even though it's not stated? The ultimate end is that he's left to, to wander. He's uh, sent away. He's let go. Uh, the word to send can mean to allow or to let go. Uh, so... He's simply let go to his fate of having to find grass on his own and not being fed. Now, later Jews, I think uh, after the exile, or maybe during the exile, were worried that he might wander back into camp. So they would take him and throw him off a cliff to break his legs, which of course meant he would die. But that is not what it says in Leviticus to do. Okay. More thoughts? Does that mean Satan never dies? I think what I think the story cuts off before the final destruction. I think the key the key element it's trying to make is that God's wrath is letting people go. Period. What happens after that is what happens because of their choice. And the real angry God who does things punitively is represented by the Zazel goat. Yeah, Gene, I have a question. I, I really like the, you're paralleling the seven last plagues to the sufferings of Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, would you uh, care to unpack that a little bit more? I don't know if this would be a... I think we have time for that. So if... If you want to follow along, you can get your Bibles out and look at Revelation chapter 16. The plagues are poured out out of seven bowls. This represents the cup again that Jesus drank. So in, ch in ch verse 2, the first angel went and poured his bowl on the earth, and a foul and painful sore came on those who had the mark of the beast. This could represent the scourging. Second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of, well, I think the first one represents the crown of thorns on his head. 
because the second one would be the scourging. The, the sea becomes like the blood of a corpse and everything in the sea dies. So there's this massive blood. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they become blood. So you have uh, the, thorn, the nails in his hands and his feet. And the fourth angel poured his bowl on the sun and was allowed to scorch them with fire. Jesus says, I thirst because the sun is in the heat of the day. Uh, the fifth angel poured his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness, and darkness enveloped the cross. The sixth angel poured his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up in order to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And I saw three foul spirits like frogs coming from the mouth of the dragon, and the mouth of the beast, and the mouth of the false prophet. These are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the Almighty. All the heavenly powers, all the great rulers of heavenly places and of, of Satan's domain were gathered at the cross. And they assembled at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. This is the, this Armageddon is um, related to Harmageddon the mountain of Megiddo, and Har, the Har Megiddo is Mount Carmel. This is the place to decide. The judgment of God takes place at the cross. The seventh angel poured his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple, the throne saying, It is done. Jesus cries, It is finished. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a violent earthquake, and there's an earthquake upon his death. The hailstones don't figure in. That seems to be something different. But certainly there's a, there seems to be a logical sequence there of what happens in relationship to Jesus' death. Yeah, a question here. Um, with the curtain being torn from top to bottom, yeah. what is that symbolic of? Is that a question that makes sense? Yeah, I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm I suppose it's related to the loud voice out of the throne of the temple. I'm still trying to relate that to uh, Revelation, but you it, it completely exposed the most holy place. There's no more need for veiling anything. God can be approached directly. The truth about him has been fully believe, revealed now, and and there's just no need for this. Because it, Paul makes it very clear that the veil isn't something God wanted. It's something we needed. And we put it over our faces because we, so we couldn't see. There's another view of that that I find uh, fascinating. Is that that veil was covered with angels. And the veil was separating us from the most holy place. And when Jesus died... He ripped that veil in half, and those angels represented the evil angels that were blocking a true picture of God. They're blocking the glory of God from coming out, because not all angels are, are on God's side. So the angels on that veil may have represented the lies of Satan. Hmm. Uh, I would also like to note on a very practical level, when that veil was ripped, it exposed the fact that the most holy place there was actually empty. Mm-hmm. Nothing there. Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant was somewhere else. Well, we have 10 minutes.
Other questions, comments? I would be happy to probe again how the Sabbath is the anti-appeasement or something. Um, maybe I misunderstood some of that. Yeah, it yeah. is. It's about as different from appeasement and rest, that motif in Enuma Elish. It's about as different from that as possible because really what it says in Genesis is that God stopped working. There's just absolutely no room in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3 for appeasement. And there's no violence. And, and, so and of course, we, appeasement goes along with violence. So when we start adding things to Sabbath or duties or requirements, are we making violence is sort of the idea? Well, if our, if our rules for keeping Sabbath start leading us away from God and, and leading us into a preoccupation of doing it ourselves, uh, certainly. Well, I'm hoping maybe look at maybe doing a, what, which you kind of already did, Revelation 16. Um, but also there was a couple other ones that we were talking about that you and I can maybe discuss for future activities uh, okay. to probe deep mm -hmm. and narrow in some of these areas. <laughs> well, so let me talk a little bit about next time which is our last time for this series. I will be take, kind of pulling things together to show, first of all, how Jesus took on Babylon. There are statements made by Jesus that really strike against the very origin, origins of certain principles and certain ideas. And then how Babylon crucified Jesus, how some of the Babylonian practices actually were involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. And of course, what Jesus took on in Babylon was not very palatable to the, his enemies. And so that too led to his crucifixion. Okay, thank you. If there's nothing else, we can uh, end the recording. And then if there's okay. other casual um thoughts or, or uh, social opportunities to discuss anything, that's fine. Would you close us out with a word of prayer, Jean? Sure. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we've covered a lot of ground today, and some of it's probably still confusing, so we ask the Spirit to continue to guide us, direct us, and help us to see you ever more clearly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.